All right, well, good evening, everyone. Once again, it is our great privilege to come together and open God's Word and consider things related to the church. So I'm going to ask you to go with me to Matthew chapter 18. And in Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to read, let's see, I'm going to read verse 15 down through verse 20, then we'll pray. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Let's pray. Lord God, once again, we do look to you. It's our desire whenever we open your word that we would rightly understand it. And as tonight we take up a passage that uh, uh, some different views are at times presented on it, our desire is just to um, really let scripture interpret scripture and see how these pieces come together so that we would rightly understand uh, something of what your word says regarding uh, the presence and power of Christ um, when God's people are gathered in Christ's name. Lord, help um, me to communicate these things uh, uh, simply, faithfully, and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the, the initial part that I read there that we're not going to go into too much detail this evening is a simple pattern of church discipline. And, and it should be a familiar pattern uh, uh, to most of us. And what I also want you to find uh, notable in this, remember, in Matthew chapter 16 is where Jesus says, I will build my church. And that's the first time we have mention of the church. Here in Matthew 18, as Jesus is even laying the, the pattern for how church discipline will be practiced, he says, if they don't listen to the two or three that come to them after the first person is rejected, you tell it to the church. And if they will not also listen to the church, then you are to treat them as a tax collector or Gentile, which means... There is now a pulling back. There is now a separation. They, they are not a part of you. They are treated and seen as those who have proven by their commitment to continue in sin to not be a part of the church. But what's interesting is, uh, think about it for a moment from the perspective of the apostles. Tell it to the church. Was there yet the church? I mean, Christ has not yet died, we've not yet come to, he's not been resurrected, we've not yet come to the day of the time of Pentecost. 
So for a lot of this, there will be in their minds, nonetheless, even in the language that Jesus is speaking to them, they will, uh, much of what we see in the church uh, has patterns that are similar to Jewish synagogues. And so they would understand, you tell it to the assembly of the God-fearers who are there. They would have some degree of understanding of that. Now, as we move down to the verse 18 to 20, uh, he says the, those things, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you ask about anything, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, there should be, when you read that passage, hopefully, based on what we looked at last Tuesday, Matthew 16, 19 should come to your mind because these are the very same words that we have in Matthew 18, 18, Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You see that in Matthew 16 and you see that in Matthew 18. Now, here's what I want to present to you. Some dear brothers in Christ, some faithful, godly men, some preachers that I would even commend to you that there is much to be gleaned and gained from their ministry. When it comes to this passage of Scripture in Matthew 18, they say, what you see here in Matthew 18 is talking only about church discipline. For example, they will say, when it says two or three are gathered in my name, it is talking about church discipline. I am not convinced personally that it's talking exclusively of church discipline, and I want us to unpack this evening why. See, these, these men will say... Um, one that I've recently listened to, the reason why it is this passage is talking about church discipline, he says, first you have to apply the common sense test. If this says where two or three are gathered, then Jesus is in the midst of them, then does that mean when I roll out of bed in the morning and I'm all alone, I can't pray because Jesus is not there, I have to wait until two or three people are gathered? No, it can't mean that. Therefore, this does not talk about some special presence of Christ with his gathered people, but it's related to church discipline. And I think he's just, he's, he's gone too far. The scriptures do say, Jesus says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there is some personal presence of Christ with the individual believer, but then this passage also says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. So I want us to, to, to look to unpack that. So, so what I'm saying is I think we've got some people on this side over here who tend to just kind of wash it away and that's just saying, no, uh, there's going to be some kind of unity that Christ helps with when carrying out church discipline. Then there's some over here on the other side that turn the promise of a presence and power of Christ into some kind of weird mystical thing, you know, that, that, that you, can, you can almost touch and smell and, and it's like, hold on a second. 
Let's be a little careful. And what I want to unpack for you is, uh, uh, and secondly, they'll say after the context, uh, uh, common sense test, we use the context test, which these are not wrong things. Uh, but the, and the, they'll say you, when you read the context, the context of the verses just before this in Matthew 18 are about church discipline. Well, that's true, but if I go uh, further, just a couple verses before that in the context, the context is about lost sheep. If I go a few verses before that, the context still in the same chapter is about temptation to sin. If I move on further than this to the following context, it's about forgiveness, okay? So, I, I get it, but just because Three verses before, it's talking about church discipline. Does not guarantee it's still talking about church discipline as we move down. And here's the reason why I am convinced, and, and, I, think, and I think we'll see why it, I'm led to that conviction, that this statement is not exclusive to church discipline. Because the statement that says where two or three are gathered, in my name, I am among them, is following Matthew 18. Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, 18. Now listen closely. Matthew 18, 18 is after the statements regarding church discipline. It's a closer context than the church discipline statements, which is 15 through 17. And what does it say? Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loose. We have another verse that says that very same thing, and that was in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, is Matthew 16 where that very same phrasing is used? Peter, uh, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind will be bound, and whatever you loose will be loose. There Jesus is talking about building his church, not about church discipline. Correct? So binding and loosing is used in both passages, not that it has no connection to church discipline, but it is not an exclusive idea to church discipline. Indeed, the binding and loosing activity of the apostles is essential to the building of the church as well as part of the discipline of the church. Okay, so it's a broader sense, and I'm going to unpack that for us in just a, a moment. So, so, so to put this one warning, common sense is not a good way to evaluate God's word. One of the reasons I say that is because God's truth often baffles our sensibilities. Someone says, well, common sense tells you if God is love, then he's not going to send anybody to the lake of fire forever and ever. Well, your common sense misled you because the scriptures say differently. And so you can't just read one verse or one part of a verse and, and then let common sense lead you the rest of the way. Because in my experience, what we often call common sense is exceedingly uncommon. It's often trained. 
I mean, you've probably heard, don't cross the road without looking both ways. You ever heard that? Do you think that's just common sense? Oh, if it was. How many people would have been spared? It's not. It's, it's, it's a sensibility that is ingrained into people. And I can tell you this because the pedestrian community on the other side of the world is, is much more active than it is here. And there is a multitude of road crossings that look neither left nor right. They just go. One day while I was driving um, uh, through a village on the way to the campus, uh, a little kid just out of nowhere decided it was time to cross the street, and he just started running. You know, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at him, and I'm like, why is this guy running? I mean, I'm driving past in my car, and the kid just barrels right in to the back door of my car. He just runs straight into the car and bounces off. I was like, oh, wow, he not only did not look left or right, Apparently, he wasn't even looking straight ahead. He just went. The same thing when you come up to a T in the road. You would think it's wise to look at oncoming traffic to make sure it's clear. And when it's clear, go. Does that make sense? Common sense? Not at all. In India, they often come up to a T and they refuse to look at oncoming traffic. They keep their head still and they just slowly go right into the traffic because what makes better sense to them is, hey, I don't see you, you see me, you're responsible. Now, I'm still not comfortable with that sensibility, but what I'm trying to say is we, we, have our, we, we think this is common sense, and then other people don't get it. No, common sense can't be the source of our interpretation of Scripture because it's so culturally influenced. It's so particularly personally biased. So we want to be a little bit cautious with common sense. Context is important. But we do have to be aware that the Scriptures oftentimes within the same chapter change from one theme to the next theme. Even certain prophecies that we're reading in the Old Testament, within a single verse of prophecy, will part of that verse will refer to things Christ will accomplish in His first coming, and the second half of that verse will refer to things that Christ will accomplish in His second coming, and we didn't know that these things were going to be divided into a first and second coming. It just seemed like it was when the Messiah comes. All the details weren't yet clear until we moved forward. So context is important, but even more important than our assessment of the context is Scripture interprets Scripture. You don't want to base any understanding on but a single passage, but a single verse. You want to build it up and let the Scripture convince you through its clarity of what it teaches. So, that said, we want to... Um, there can be a subjective emphasis on themes and on the flow of thought which may or may not be the author's original intent. For one person to say this was the author's original intent and another person says, no, this is what the author was thinking when he wrote that, 
Who knows what the author was thinking when he wrote that? I mean, can any of us interview the guy and find out exactly what he was thinking? We can't. We can begin to extrapolate what he was thinking by looking at all the other passages where he speaks to the same issue or matter. Okay? So, uh, moving on down still here in this uh, pair of... So, simply saying something like, um, this would make it seem like we can't pray alone if Jesus is only with us when two or three are gathered. Well, this passage did not say Jesus is only with us where two or three are gathered. It said, where two or three are gathered in his name, I am there among them. Now, we're going to look at that. It's not saying he's not with the individual in some sense too, but it's speaking of some distinctive measure. And what, I, what, what happens is we begin to flatten out the presence of God and flatten out the presence of Christ and not notice certain distinctions. Secondly, Note, um, it's a misappropriation to say, look, it says two or three witnesses where uh, two or three are gathered. So since it says two or three witnesses in the context of church discipline, it's where two or three are gathered. This is not a reference to the church. It's a reference to church, church discipline. Well, it also it said this. If they, don't li if they don't listen to the two or three, then tell it to who? The church. And if they will not listen to the church. Well, wait a second. But our, our, our church in our, in our small fledgling community with, with just a few believers is pretty small. If this sinner, we throw him out of the church, we're going to get pretty small. Hey, don't worry about how small you get it's still a church. That could also be what's being spoken of here. So there's just so much that we're wrangling with, and I want to get away from the coulds and try to unpack what it really seems to say. So go with me, if you would, um, and uh, let's see, I, 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 to the section that I've got little bullet points there. So when we look at Matthew 18 and these verses, we see this. In verses 15 to 17, we see the basics of church discipline. In verse 19, we see the basis for church discipline. That is, Christ's authority through his apostles' teaching. Because remember, uh, now I want, to, want us to note this, the basis for church discipline is also the basis upon which, to some extent, the church is built. Because we remember, we'll remember when we saw all those, all those pieces? So is it built on, as it says in Ephesians, on the foundation of the apostle prophets? Well, yes, and that's not exclusive. That's not without Christ, Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so when we put all these things together, we note this. The doctrine and teaching that will come through the apostles... It forms the basis for the church, its doctrine, and its discipline. Now, we're going to unpack that a little more in a bit. In verse 20, we see the special promise that authenticates the apostles' teaching to the church. And that is if two, oh, that's supposed to say of. Why does it say or? I wish I could blame the computer, but I can't. Uh, two of you. 
ask anything, it will be done by the Father in heaven. Again, I don't want us to miss this. Who is Jesus teaching here at this point? These are his apostles, his disciples, those, those special men that he's equipping for that key role. Now, some say, wait a second, do we listen to the apostles or do we listen to Jesus? Yeah, when we listen to the apostles, we are listening to Jesus. Indeed, every word that we have of Jesus has come to us through who? The apostles. Which book of the New Testament did Jesus write? Yeah, none of them were penned by his hand. And so we, we, we've got to uh, uh, grasp this. And besides, does God's word always prove true? Is there any time it fails? Two or three agree about anything. It will be done. You ever tried that? Try it. To, try it to, tonight at home or meet a friend somewhere in a coffee shop. Agree together about levitation and see if you find yourself in the table booth you're sitting at floating. I mean, the passage says, if two of you agree about anything, is it going to happen? A lot of people have tried it, and a lot of people have claimed it as well. But see, one of the things that was so crucial, and, and God was so pleased to do, was to demonstrate through the apostles great, extraordinary, miraculous power that authenticated their apostolic message. Now, some others also exercised some degree of gifts of healing and degrees uh, of things, but God was promising to these apostles, not only would their message be that which is given to them by the Holy Spirit so that they would rightly represent the teaching that God is giving to them, but that message would also be uniquely authenticated. I mean, one example of that Many of you are aware, um, shortly after the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter and John head to the temple. They look at a man who's sitting there, and the, the scripture says very clearly that Peter and John, they both told him, look at us. You have these two come together in unity and agreement, and what do they say to this man? Silver and gold. Have I none, but such as I have, I give unto you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And what happened? He got up and walked. And, and astounding things happened at the hands of the apostles. Uh, but listen, these things can be absolutely misused. Two of you agree about anything. The beauty of that, by, by having two of them, if one of them had, had a, a selfish inclination, that was going to be quashed to a degree by his fellow apostle. No, that's not there. And it's a beautiful thing to see with, with what frequency the scriptures uh, often try to present them going forward two by two. Remember, Jesus sent out the 12 two by two. He sent out the 70 two by two. Uh, when, when they came down to meet Philip, it was uh, Peter and John. Uh, when uh, Paul goes on his missionary journey, it's not just Paul. It's Paul and Barnabas. And then it's Paul and Silas. Uh, there, is, there is always 
great restraint and accountability in numbers. And in this particular promise, he wanted them, he wanted them to, to, to note this. He was going to grant through the hands of the apostles. And if you well, remember, when we read through the early part of our Acts, it said how often God was granting by the hands of the apostles great signs and wonders and miracles. It doesn't even tell us what all those things are. We don't even have, a, what we have recorded is impressive. But sometimes it just tells us that these things were being done by the hands of the apostles. And it was authenticating, hey, listen, Jesus who did these same things, when we give you instruction, you take it from Jesus. Because we're showing the same power that he showed when he was here. Because listen, when they come forward and they're going to say, circumcision is not required. That is a big one. When, they come, when they're going to come forward and they're going to begin to say, ultimately, the Feast of Tabernacles, not required. The sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, not required. Whoa! Now you are coming against things that were just the heart of God's covenant people under the old covenant. But see, they would uniquely be used of God to bind and to loose. Now, to, and then uh, verse 21 goes on further. Verse 20 says, if any of you ask anything, it will be done for you. And then verse 21 says, for where two or three are gathered. So again, they have a special promise of power to be exercised in their ministry when two of them or more are together. And then he expands that. The next verse says nothing to do with you. Indeed, where any two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. So as a special power of God, of Christ, would be manifest among the apostles, when there were at least two of them, there is a special presence of Christ and special powerful working of Christ among his people when they're gathered together, even if it's small numbers. And I'm going to unpack this for you. Uh, we looked at some of these things last week, so uh, I'm just uh, helping you put these in writing if I, uh, where I didn't before. Matthew 18 as well as Matthew 16, I've given you a literal translation of these verses from, from two different uh, translations, from the New English translation and from the uh, Christian Standard Bible, because the one is literal. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been released in heaven. The importance of that, it's because this, uh, the verb there is in the perfect passive. In other words, they are not controlling what happens in heaven. What has been decided in heaven is now being rendered on earth through them. It started there. So what they declare, they're not the start of it. What they, what they 
loose has already been loosed in heaven. What they bind has already been bound in heaven. Now, I want to, I've explained this, I don't want it to be too repetitive, but you can see uh, uh, on the bottom of page one and all of page two for your own reading, but I will summarize it for you. Simply this, the phrase binding and loosing is a remarkably common phrase for Jews. It's the language of rabbis. It means this is lawful, this is unlawful. You must do this, you must not do this. You can do this, you can't do that. All right, so you had different uh, rabbis. For example, one of the examples that's oft given is uh, there, there's, uh, these, are, these are in the Midrash and in the Talmud that unfold these things in Jewish writings. Uh, one of the rabbis comes in and tells people, listen, you are not permitted to carry wood on the Sabbath. You are bound from carrying wood on the Sabbath. Another rabbi comes in, a rabbi named Hillel, and he says, you are loosed to carry wood on the Sabbath. So binding and loosing is telling people what they can and cannot do. And that was absolutely crucial for the apostles because they are going to be uh, uh, busting a whole load of things as we move from the old covenant to the new. As they put an end to the entire sacrificial system and say that Christ has brought all of that to, to an end. Special days, special seasons, new moon, special festivals, that is all shadow. Christ is the substance. So they get to loose the people. A, a, a kind of thing where, where uh, I guess it's uh, uh, Peter who says, when, they, when the apostles are discussing these things in Acts 15, why will we put a yoke, bind a yoke on their shoulders that neither we or our ancestors could bear. And so they weren't going to bind that yoke on their shoulders. They were going to loose them from that yoke of the old covenant law. So now coming forward, and, I, and I'm hoping to put these things together that kind of play into some of the things we looked at uh, on Sunday morning. Here's where the confusion lies in understanding the presence of God, okay? We don't want to have some, some weird mystical understanding where uh, we know that we've, we're in the presence of God because we had uh, uh, goosebumps or the hair on our arms stood up or, 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 or we felt some particular swell of emotion, that's not what the scriptures say and teach. Not to say that it ought not be a regular and frequent experience of God's people when we're together worshiping Him in the hearing of the, of the Word and in the opening up of the truth to us, us that our emotions don't sometimes remarkably swell. That sometimes we are overwhelmed and sometimes maybe we have such a sense of, of, of awe as God has revealed in that passage, that we do get goosebumps. But what I want us to know is this. If this passage, which 
I'm, I'm going to show you why I think it is, refers to where two or three are gathered, he is in the midst of them. You know what that means? When they're right, rightly and faithfully gathered together in his name, he's there whether they felt it or not. He's there whether there was a goosebump, whether there was an emotion, whether there was a tear or not. He's there. How do I know he's there? Because he says he'll be there. That's how. And so it's a scary thing when people start to refer to his presence among his people as if it wasn't palpable in some way, then it was absent. But if it was absent, then what you're saying is Christ did not keep his promise? Now, I know you don't want to go there. We should never go there. So what I want us to understand is this, and, and, and part of the confusion comes in this. God is omnipresent, yes? And yet, though God is omnipresent everywhere, there are some places that he is more manifestly present. And I know this is hard for us to understand because we are not omnipresent. And no one we've ever met or seen or know, none of our pets, none of, none of, none of, in no one has ever been omnipresent or even multi-present. So it, it, it's, it's a hard picture for us. But again, a few verses to establish that, one, that glorious truth that we know without question. What I call the, might call the natural, general, common presence of God in all places and at all times. And listen, because I call it common doesn't mean that it's something weak or ordinary. It's still pretty amazing, but it is, but God is everywhere. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 24 says, can a man, man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Declares the Lord. Do I not fill Heaven and earth, declares the Lord. In other words, where are you going to hide? I'm everywhere. <laughs> you can't hide. Uh, Psalms uh, unpacks it as well. Psalm 139, verse 7 and following. Where shall I go from your spirit? Now, some of you say, well, that's God's spirit. That's not God. Well, God the Father is spirit. <laughs> right, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, now that should have been a given, <laughs> you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So hold on a second. We're all comfortable with the first part of that. God's in heaven. You go to heaven. He's there. But now it says you go down to the place of departed spirits. You, 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 go to that, you go to that place where even the wicked are. You go to the place where many angels are bound in chains. He's also there. And of course, he just unpacks the rest of that there. Uh, if I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, an unplanned, spontaneous trip that I'm not even sure what my destination is. You may not be sure what your destination is. 
he already knows what your destination is. Not only does he know what your destination is, even as you may be just kind of randomly going, it says this, even there your hand shall, shall lead me. You were just going and not even deciding which exit you were going to take, but the exit you took, even there, he was there. Not only is he present there when you get there, but in a sense he led you there. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say the darkness will cover me and the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is light with you. Proverbs 15.3 simply says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. I'm pretty sure it didn't take any convincing to you all here tonight that God is omnipresent. Yet... Even though God is omnipresent, was Jesus right or wrong when he said, our Father, who art in heaven? Well, he was right. Now, some would say, well, of course he was right, but he could have started his prayer, our Father, who art in Sheol. Really? Our Father, who art on earth. Our Father, who's right here. Why didn't he say that? Because though there is a sense in which God is everywhere, there is, a, there is a more manifest sense in which God is in heaven. Now, I know this is going to get a little fuzzy, but I, but I want to show you why it has to get fuzzy. Because if it doesn't get a little fuzzy in our minds, then we're, mis, we're, we're not getting what the scriptures teach. Go with me if you would. Genesis 3. Uh, this is... Adam and Eve in the garden. And what does it say? They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Now, before they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of Eve, in an omnipresent sense, was he not already there? Yes. But in a more manifest sense, he took on a form that would walk. Again, we would oft see this as a Christophany, a, a God in a visible form is whenever that takes place in the scriptures is the son. The scriptures make it very clear. And Jesus even says, no one man hath seen the father at any time. And, but, but we say, oh, God was seen, it must be the Father. No, no, no. Jesus is also fully, absolutely God. And every visible presentation, a uh, 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 seeing of God would be a presence of the Son. But, but that's a secondary matter. Look, and, and he and his wife, listen, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Simple question. Can anyone hide from the omnipresence of the Lord? No. But can they try to hide from a manifest presence of the Lord? Yes. And I, we're going to see a little more. Genesis chapter 4. When God judges Cain and sends him out to where now he's going to be east of Eden, 
where, where many of the others are going to be in different regions of Eden, Eden, the scripture actually says this, then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. There was a manifest presence of the Lord pronouncing a judgment against him, convicting him of the murder of his, of his brother, and then he went out of the presence of the Lord. So listen, at the same time, he went out of the presence of the Lord and never left the presence of the Lord. <laughs> right? Never left his omnipresence, but left his special manifestation at that time for communication. Exodus chapter 33, um, talking to Moses regarding going into the land. And he said to, said to him, my presence will go with you. Please note, that's not just his omnipresence. That is his special, powerful presence with his people. And I will give you rest. And of course, uh, uh, Moses says to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Because without the presence of God, the, the hope of their success and victory would be relatively diminished. Numbers 14, 14, listen. Um, they will tell the inhabitants of the land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. So listen, there is a sense in which he is present everywhere, correct? There is a more extraordinary special sense in which he is in the midst of his people. If we were to be using the King James here, where two or three are gathered, I am in the midst of them. There is a, now, he is everywhere present. And, and there is a special way in which he's with me individually and you individually that exceeds even the general presence. But there's even another special extraordinary sense in which Christ's presence and power is at work when people, his people, gather together in his name. And if we, if we don't see that, we're, we're missing many Old Testament themes, and we're going to start to think really small with regard to the church. Church is going to be secondary. It's going to be optional. I was listening to someone today uh, who was who was. So thankful that it looks like this Sunday, this coming Sunday, finally they're going to get to meet in California with some degree of restraint. And the example the guy used, he said, you know, it's, it's like this. When I can put, you know, a, a, a screenshot of a burning fire on my television, you know, and it can be kind of calming and relaxing, you know, and, and it can set a mood in the room to some extent. But it's not the same thing as an actual fire in the fireplace where, where, where you can feel the warmth of it. There, there, there is, there is a, a different level of experience when you are not just seeing fire, but when you're in the presence of fire, you know? And, and so zoom or virtual or online it just is not the same thing it's not you know and, and, and but i think the reason why 
There's so many in, in our day and age right now who think, eh, it's no different. It's sadly because I think uh, the fault goes upon churches who have maybe tended to turn church into a show. Here's the show up there, and you the audience out there. You watch the, the little mini concert, you, you, you listen to the fancy speaker, you, 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 you receive all of that, and then you go. Well, if that's the case, you can kind of watch that if all you are is an audience. But we got to be more than an audience. We pray, we say our amens to one another. We hear, some, we hear something of truth in God's word, we say our amens together. We, we affirm there is a, 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 a rich participation oh, and, and, and wonderful unity that takes place. Breaks my heart. Yeah. Now listen, if people are in places where they simply cannot, look, something is better than nothing. But God has something better for his people. And so we come together. And I want to, say, to, to get a sense of this, um, let me keep reading here. Uh, for you, O Lord, uh, are seen face to face, and, and your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. So listen, the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire itself was a special manifestation of God's presence. And then even that would descend on the temple, and it would be as if the temple was on fire. And then in time to come, we'll see that God would manifest His presence in the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. And there, He would speak with Moses, where there would be that would be the most manifest presence of the Lord. And so you would have this sense in which, look, He's omnipresent. And there's another sense in which He's in the midst of His people. And there's another sense in which He's in the midst of the cloud and the fire and the mercy seat. Right? And so you have these degrees of expression of His presence and His manifestation. Of course, the fullest manifestation of God, do you know what the fullest manifestation of God was and is? Jesus Christ, His Son. Jesus Christ. In Him, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Also, uh, uh, Jesus would even so boldly say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, well, so you look just like Him? Uh, remember, other passages say He's invisible <laughs> and, and dwells in unapproachable light. So... Why are you making it physical? When, when we say that Christ is, we two or three are gathered, He is in the midst of us, that's not a physical thing. It's not a mystical thing. It's a spiritual reality. And it's a, it's a little bit scary when, when uh, people drift towards the mystical instead of the spiritual because people can get mystical sensations while staring at statues. And that's not a thing. Again, to, to, to show this sense, again, uh, Numbers 35 says God dwells in the midst of his people, speaks in Leviticus 22 how those who are unclean shall be cut off from my presence. 
So there's a sense in which you're cut off from his presence. But even when you're cut off, you're still kind of in his presence. But just not his special presence. So you can see those kind of things. Now moving on down to the last verse on page 3. Go tell David my servant, it is not for you to build me a house to dwell in. Now, the concept of dwelling in is to live in, be in the midst of. That would be a more significant place of manifestation. It's not for you to build a place for me to dwell in. Because listen what it says in verse 5. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you up out of Egypt, but I have gone from tent to tent, from dwelling to dwelling. Then he goes on to say later in chapter 17 that... um, I will raise up after you one of your offspring, your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me. Initially, who fulfilled that? Solomon built a house for him. And even as, as Solomon built a house for him, he, in, on page 4, Solomon says at the dedication of the temple, uh, uh, um, who is able to build him a house? Since heaven and even highest heaven cannot contain him. So he understands the omnipresence of God. Um, Who am I to build a house for him except for a place uh, to make offerings before him? And yet listen to what what it says in chapter 6 verse 2. He says, but I have built you an exalted house, a place to dwell in forever. So... Again, trying to, trying to put all these pieces together. All right. There's the omnipresence of God, and there's the special presence of God. Now, to, to just see a couple more uh, uh, pieces that, that help to make things clearer in terms of, let's be cautious when we handle the scriptures. Listen, first, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and following says, says of the wicked, they will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might. So, what does it say? Away from. Does that mean He's not present there? Yeah, the thunder is saying, yes, He is present there because it is His wrath that is being poured out on them in that place. And what's interesting is though, in a sense, it says they will be out of the presence of the Lord because they now have no expression of his patience, no expression of his compassion, no expression of his mercy, the full array of the riches of his glory, they don't see it all. Now they're only the wrath and anger. But listen, even as it says they're apart from his presence, look what Revelation says about them. Those who have received the the mark, the the wicked. It says, um, they will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out in full strength into his cup of his anger, and he, that's the wicked, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So answer me this question. Are they apart from the presence of the Lord when they're being judged, or are they in the presence of the Lord when they're being judged? And you say, yeah, there is a sense in which they're in His presence, and there is a sense in which 
They're apart from his presence. And it's fuzzy. But if you don't let it be fuzzy, then you're only taking half of what the scriptures say. Means uh, because they're apart from his glory and his might. At that point, they, they're, they're, all they know is wrath. They don't, they don't know his beauty. They don't know his excellencies. They don't, they don't revel in his glory. All they know is wrath. Okay, let's keep going. Jesus also says, uh, go on with me to, uh, I'm going to go on all the way down to John 12, verse 8. Jesus says, as he's incarnate, he says, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Wait a second. We do not always have him? Bodily. <laughs> you do, there is a, so there's a sense in which we do not, but a sense in which we do. Is it getting complicated, but am I saying it clear enough that you're seeing the pieces? Okay. Jesus says again in John 17, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Well, why is Jesus coming? He's talking, praying to the Father there. I'm coming to you. Where are you coming? He's everywhere. Well, yes, he's everywhere, but in the purposes of God, there is a most prominent manifestation of God in the heaven of heavens. And Christ is going to ascend to the heaven of heavens and take his seat at the right hand of the throne of Almighty. And it is on that throne that there is the most manifest presence of God. And at the right hand of the throne is the most manifest presence of the Son. But there is also a manifest presence of the Son where two or three are gathered in His name. There is also a manifest presence of the Lord within each believer. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, don't ask me to quantify those, those things and those degrees and percentages. And th these are beyond us. I mean, the, if I try to, to, to be more precise than this, I'm going to start tiptoeing on potential heresy. And I don't want to do that. Now, uh, sometimes by not allowing all of the scriptures to speak... We lock into a heresy, a heresy of denying special expressions of God's presence by only asserting His omnipresence, which thankfully the omnipresence thing is true, but you miss out on the, the fact that the scriptures speak of also secondary things. So there's a sense in which He's leaving. Even in John 6, He says this, I tell you, He's speaking to His apostles, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. But then in Matthew, he says what? Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So I ask you this question. Is he with them always, or did he go away? And the answer is, he went away, and he is with them always. Now, 
which also speaks of the omnipresence of Christ. That Christ could be seated at the right hand of the Father and with each of the believers in the, uh, 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 speaks of that. Go on to page five. Good. Remember, reminding us of also this wonderful word in the encouragement and why we are a people who have, by God's grace, the ability to be content in whatever circumstances we have. And that is why. And, and not to be caught up in worldly ambitions and money and value. Be content with what you have, for he said, I will le never leave you nor forsake you. When we have, you know, it would be a diminishing statement to say the pearl of great price. Those were only examples of what a particular individual valued. And so he sold the field and everything he had to, to, for that one pearl of great price. But it, it, Christ is the truest treasure of all things. And, he, and what does he say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, visualize this for a moment. Jesus is saying farewell to his disciples at the Olivet Mountain, the Olivet Discourse, and he begins to ascend into the clouds. Wait a second. I thought you will never leave us or forsake us. I thought you will be with us always. But he's gone. And then an angel appears and says what? As you have seen him go, so also he will come. So listen, is he with us? Are we awaiting his coming? You're awaiting someone to come who's already here? <laughs> We're waiting for him to come in, in a glorious, manifest, glorious body, body presence. Right now, there is a rich spiritual presence. Christ in us, the hope of glory with his people. Uh, uh, Christ in the midst of his people as they gather in his name. Rich, rich, rich. And that's why it says, surely I come. In, in Matthew 18, verse 20, it says these words, for where two or three. Now note, it's not like the verse that's, that talked about where two of you agree about anything, emphasizing to those apostles he was speaking to. Where two of you agree about anything, it will be done. I mean, honestly, I would have liked that promise too. If I could uh, link up with any of you and we just agree for something, that would be probably dangerous, actually. <laughs> Where two or three are gathered in my name, there. Now, when it says there, that is the Greek term, eke, which means there in that place. Now, this, again, is a potential deficiency of Zoom or, or, or whatever um, crowdcasting, Skyping, Microsoft Teams, whatever it is that, that's being used, they're in that place. I am among them. I mean, that, that, that's why it, it's such an extraordinary thing. We get the privilege to draw near, draw near to him, and he draws near to us. Now, I want to just unpack a couple things in closing that, that will confuse us even further. 
but even as it confuses us further, it also deepens our joy in the promise of the presence and power of Christ. As an apostle, Paul would say this as they're gathered together, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit. Now, is he somehow transported there? No. Listen, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of faith in Christ. Again, in that context, I'm with you, that is the gathered group, your good order, which is a phrase, a common phrase of the, how, how the church conducts itself with good order and the firmness of their faith. So this, again, is, is a statement uh, uh, where Paul is in some sense saying, and I don't quite want to know how to unpack all of those elements. He's in some sense saying, when you, when you guys come together, I am not there, but I am with you in spirit and rejoice to see your good order and firmness of faith. Now, there may be a sense in which the apostles are there in spirit in the sense that the very same spirit that has given the apostles that authority and works through them, the very same spirit that has given them the, the words and the letters which, which they write the good order and firmness of faith that ought to be held by them, since it's the same spirit who has given those things and it is the same spirit who is working those things among the Colossians, that simply may be the sense where he's not talking about him uniquely being there. But nonetheless, you, you, you see um, even this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Now, this one here, 1 Corinthians 5, is in the context of church discipline where Colossians 2 wasn't. So we see how the presence of the apostle spirit, the presence of Christ is surely there where the church is conducting church discipline. But it's also there when there is good order and firmness of faith. But he says this in chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. For though I am absent in the body, I am present in spirit and as if present. Now, I wanted you to notice that. I am present in spirit and as if present. Which means he's saying, don't take this too literally. I'm not actually there. And I'm not actually saying that my spirit is there. I, I'm not like that. You know, don't, don't misunderstand it. Don't take it too far. It's, it's like he's saying figuratively, I'm with you uh, in united in spirit, united in heart, united in affection, united in love, united in commitment. But look what he says. As if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And now they are going to pronounce the very judgment that he's pronounced against the sinner and cast him out of their church. And listen what it says in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, which includes the, all of the instruction he's written to them, the pronouncement that he's made against them, uh, that this man is going to be judged based on the apostolic standard of doctrine and, and right behavior and teaching. The pronouncement and judgment that's going to be pronounced is that which has been declared with the authority of the apostles. And when they're assembled in his name, uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I love that, not assembled in the name of Paul, the apostle. They're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, but there is a sense in which uh, the spirit that works in and through the apostles is at work within the churches, listen, with the power of our Lord Jesus 
Christ. When is this unique expression of the power of our, the Lord Jesus Christ being expressed among them? It says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we get this, when, you are, when we come together, however the number may be, when we come together and we are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, there is a special manifestation of Christ's presence and a special manifestation of Christ's power. When we come, we come not only to meet with one another, we come to meet with Christ. We come not only to draw near to one another, but we come to draw near to Christ. There's a sense in which the body and the head are absolutely unbreakable. You remember when, when Jesus spoke from heaven, what did he say to Paul? Paul, why are you persecuting me? Was he literally persecuting Jesus? Jesus was dead, risen, and ascended. So who was he persecuting? We know it well. He was persecuting the church. And when you persecute the church, you are, in a sense, persecuting Christ. When we come together in the name of Christ, Christ is among us. It, it is, again, we see this so often uh, the, the design even was, how was faith going to come? Faith was going to come by hearing, hearing the word of God. And God was going to, through the foolishness of preaching, to save those who are lost. That, well, what if man comes up with other ways? Don't think you can come up with. Well, what if we, shouldn't we come up, look at the culture and figure out better ways to do church? No. We come together in the name of Christ. And when we do so, humbly and simply, we come to meet with Christ. We come to hear from Christ. Not about, we come to glory in Christ. We come to remember all that Christ is and has done for us. There is a special presence and special power when his people come together. And so again, I, I remind you of those, uh, those thing, a couple things we saw on Sunday. He said this, um, in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 and following, note this, as you come to him, that is to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. So Christ as the living stone you yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So when you take the, all the different living stones, what do you end up building? A spiritual house. When those stones come together and form a house, what happens? Well, what does it say? to behold a priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the, under the old covenant, there was a house that was built where God would manifest himself specially and where he would dwell specially. They would still gather to the temple and do all of those sacrifices. Jesus said this, tear down this temple. And in three days... I will rebuild it. 
brothers and sisters, is he talking about the physical temple? No. You know what he's talking about? I will build my church. We become a spiritual house. And as in that house, it was a place where he dwelt, a place where he was powerfully present, a place where he spoke to his people, the spiritual house that we are living stones of. When we come together, we form a spiritual house where Christ is spiritually present, where spiritually through the word, Christ speaks to us. And today, if you hear his voice, Hebrews is so bold to say. Why? Because this is his word, and it's a living word. And when this is rightly spoken, there's a spiritual sense in which Christ speaks. Lastly, we see this. Remember, when they came together and they prayed together at the end of Acts 4, the place where they were gathered was shaken and they were filled with the spirit when they came together and the the shaking of the place we don't need the shaking of the place they got the shaking and it was evidence to them god is among them hearing and answering their prayers and then he did answer their prayers by the power of the spirit filling them to embolden them as they had prayed that god would have them do that's the same thing we're talking about when we come together to worship to pray, to sing, to hear his word. He's with us. He's with us with a special presence. He's with us to powerfully work among his people. That's why we ought to come together with a sense of expectation. I'm drawing near to God. Listen, there was, he was manifest in the burning bush in the way he wasn't in any of the other bushes. And Moses was told what? Remove your shoes. The place that you are standing is holy ground. He was drawing near to a presence. I'm not saying we remove our shoes. <laughs> but what I am saying is there is that same sense that when we come together, we come into a holy place. We're drawn near to the Lord. We need to come with that sense of desire, expectation, earnestness. I mean, because when we understand that, I'll tell you this little bit of fatigue ain't going to keep us from drawing near to the Lord. You know, you, you, you think that kind of thing, I mean, recently they've been showing all this um, documentaries of, of Michael Jordan and everyone is inspired again with how, how great he was. You know what, if someone had the one-off opportunity who was a great basketball fan to meet Michael Jordan... And they were told, look, Michael Jordan, he's ready to meet you right here at this hotel, 8.30 on Sunday morning. What's the likelihood that great fan is going to, eh, I'm a little tired this morning, I ain't going to go see Michael. What's he going to do? That guy's going to probably even be so tired, but he, will, he may have even stayed up all night. But somehow he's still going to be there because that seems like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Now look, we meet more frequently than that. But what we meet and who we meet with is way more glorious than that, you know. 
Uh, not that if we're sick that we should come and make others sick. Not, you know, not that there aren't at times extenuating circumstances, but when we have a right sense of the richness of God's gathered people. Oh my, we don't take lightly. And that's why we also rejoice in, in, a, in a time in which many have not been able to gather around the warmth of the fire. God has, not, God has enabled us to continue to do so. And we rejoice that he's opening the door for them to be able to do so. And, I, and I, let us pray together that through what has happened and what is going on, that God will stir up in people's hearts and minds, this is a loss I never want to have again. You know, how dare anyone refer to this as not essential? This is drawing near to the one who is my very life and my very hope. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much that we could spend this time. And, and we do thank you for the special promise that as your people, personally and individually, we have the hope of glory that is Christ in us. That even if every man forsakes us, we are never alone because you, O oh God, are with us. And we thank you for that special way that you're with us, that you're not with those who do not know you. Lord, we also thank you that your word indicates not only at times could you offer um, uh, special privileges, special authority, and special power uh, to your apostles. We also thank you your word is filled with special promises to your people. And among them, that when two or three gather in your name, that you meet with them, that you're in that place with them in a special way. Lord, we want to uh, just revel in this truth, and it reminds us just how important the assembling of the saints is. Even as further, Lord, we pray that you'd prepare us as we look in the following weeks at the richness of membership and the richness of being members of a body and, and the uh, various uh, expressions that you give to that which belongs to Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is the great shepherd and we are his sheep and oh, we want to be near our shepherd. In Jesus' name.